Let's pray. Father, we do praise your holy name. And we especially this morning want to be mindful that you are merciful and mighty. You are mighty and merciful. What a glorious word and is. If you were merciful yet had no might, what good would it be? And if you were mighty without mercy, we would have no hope. So we praise you that you are mighty and that you are merciful. Father, as we come now to open your word together as your people, I pray that we would all participate. I will be speaking, but we have come to hear your voice. We have come to hear from you. So I pray that your spirit would open our hearts to receive your word. I pray that we would hear, that we would think, that we would meditate, and that we would respond, even in our hearts, even before we leave. I pray that your word would have its effect. We trust in its power, and we pray that you would use it this morning to to better conform us to the image of your son. No matter what that means, whether it, it means encouragement or comfort, or if it means confrontation with our own sin. I pray that you would give us what we need, even if it's not what we want. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Over the past few weeks, we have been considering different attributes of, of God. We, we knew we'd be, we would be in a season of change and transition no matter, no matter what that looked like precisely or exactly. And so our desire was, was to help ground us in these deep, deep truths about God's character himself. And that we would see him as an anchor in a time of uncertainty. And so, uh, over the course of the last few weeks, we've talked about God's love, and just been a reminder to you that no matter what's happening, God loves you, and nothing can change that. We've, we've emphasized God's wisdom, that God is wise, that you, you're not sure what to do. Well, He always does what is right. He always knows what is best to do, and we can ask Him for wisdom, and He will grant it to us when we ask. Uh, we, we emphasize the Lord's compassion. That, that God really does care. You feel like the world is, is totally out of control. Your life is totally out of control. But this, this precious reminder that God cares for you. And last week, we, we emphasized from Psalm 93, even when life feels like it's chaotic, even when the floods come and they seem to overwhelm, our God is in control. The Lord reigns. This week, our, our final week in this, in this little series, we, we are likely going to start walking through the book of James over the rest of the summer so that we can dive in a book verse by verse, walk through, through the book of James. That's something we've, we've talked about. Um, but this morning, 
we're going to finish this series by focusing on God's goodness. So I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 34. And, you know, as I was thinking through how I could unpack this for you, um, because, you know, we're, we're not in uh, an, an expository series, meaning we're not, we're not walking verse by verse through a book of the Bible over an extended period of time right now. So how can, how can we maximize this season and especially this sermon? How, what, what, could, what could I do that might be a little bit, a little bit different for us? And so I, I thought about it. I could take the entire psalm. I could take all of Psalm 34 and walk through it verse by verse to, to show you what the psalmist was saying and what he meant and what that now means for us. Uh, we, that's what we typically do. Um, but then I, I, I thought, well, how, how am I going to approach this, this psalm myself? And I, as I was reading it, I read all the way through verse 10, and then I started meditating on verse 8. That's what I want us to do this morning. I'm going to read through verse 10, and then I want us together for the rest of our time to meditate on verse 8. Let's, let's read Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10 together. I'll, I'll, when I say that, I'm always like, that sounds confusing. It's like, we're not going to say, we're not going to read it together, like in all the different translations you guys have out there. It'd be really confusing, and you'd be like, am I in a Baptist church, or, you know, what happened? Are we speaking in tongues now? Or So anyway, I'm going to read the word over you, but you follow along with me. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is God's word. So we believe David wrote this psalm. There might be even in your Bible a little note at the top that that describes the situation that David was in. We we believe David wrote this psalm. And it's a testimony. It's a testimony of what the Lord has done for him. He he begins by saying, I will praise the Lord. I I will praise the Lord. Continually, I will praise the Lord. I will boast in Him, in Him alone. And so then he invites the entire congregation, magnify His name with me. Let's magnify the Lord together. And then, you know, there's a reason for it. And he gives the reason. Why? Why am I so happy in God? Why am I calling you to magnify His name? Well, because I sought Him when I was in trouble. When I was in trouble, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He was faithful. He rescued me from my fears. He responded to me. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And some of you may have 
a testimony like that. That might be really fresh for you. That you were in a season of trouble and you called upon the Lord and he answered you and he was faithful and he responded and he rescued you. And then when you jump down to verse 8, it's almost like this conclusion that he draws. It's like, praise God, here's why, here's what it means. I was in trouble, and the Lord answered me. Why? Why did God answer you? Is it because you're really special? Is it because you're, you're on the inside? You're, on, you're, you're, on the inner, you're in the inner circle? Why did he respond to you in faithfulness? Why did he rescue you? Is it because you were really faithful in going to the temple, David, that week? You were a good king that week? Is, is, it, is it because you were faithful in your Bible reading plan? Why? Why? Why, was the, why did the Lord answer you in this way? In verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because the Lord is good. Because the Lord is good. That's why. So, what can we say about the goodness of the Lord? I want us to meditate on this in three different ways. So if you're a note taker and you don't have anything to write with in your liturgy guide, there are two places where you can take notes. There's a blank page. It's right at the staple. So as soon as you open it up, it's right there. And then on the other side, there are some guided notes. But we've got basically three headings, three observations we want to make. The first relates to the glory of God's goodness in himself. Okay? We want to emphasize and meditate on the glory of God's goodness in himself. And then after we do that, Naturally, we need to ask, okay, is, is God's goodness just in him? Do we share in his goodness in any way? The answer is yes. So the second observation, the second uh, point of meditation will be the power of God's goodness in his people. So the glory of God's goodness in himself, the power of God's goodness in his people is that second heading. And then the third, the third point, the third truth, whatever you want to call it, uh, we're going to emphasize the abundance of God's goodness in his son. So the glory of God's goodness in himself, the power of God's goodness in his people, and then finally, the abundance of God's goodness in his son, where we will ask the question, how great is his goodness really? How great is it? How far does it extend? Okay, so first, the glory of God's goodness in himself. What do we mean when we say God is good? And, and as I mentioned earlier, we can divide God's attributes into those two categories. If you think of God's attributes as relating to his greatness, and then those attributes relating to his goodness. Millard Erickson, a Baptist theologian, he, he wrote this. If the qualities of greatness were God's only attributes, he might conceivably be an immoral or amoral being. Okay, so he's like, just because God is great, just because he's eternal and he's infinite and he's unchangeable doesn't mean that that's good news for us. He could be an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, evil being. You know, it has nothing to do with his moral attributes. That's, that's related to his greatness. So Erickson says, if the qualities of greatness were God's only attributes, he might conceivably be an immoral or amoral being, exercising his power and knowledge in a capricious or even cruel fashion. But... Erickson says, because he has attributes of goodness as well as greatness, he can be trusted and 
loved. So it's just important to make this distinction at the front that God is both great and he is good. And we can also say about God's goodness that his goodness is the center. It is the focal point. It is the center of all of his moral attributes and actions. So the love and the grace and the mercy and the patience of God, each they flow out of the fact that God is good. Because God is good, he loves his people. Because God is good, he is gracious. Because God is good, he is merciful to his people. Because God is good, he shows patience to those who continue to run from him. Okay, and, and uh, Wayne Grudem, he, he has a few different ways of, of mentioning this. I thought this was a little bit helpful. He mentions God's mercy. And he says, God's mercy is God's goodness toward those in distress. He says, God's grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And his third example is, God's patience is God's goodness toward those who continue to sin over a period of time. So the goodness of God is the center of all of those moral attributes and actions. But another thing we can say about God's goodness, the goodness of God is not rooted in our personal expectations for him, nor is it rooted in our personal definitions of his goodness. Okay, so the goodness of God is not rooted in our personal expectations for or our definitions of his goodness. The goodness of God is rooted in God himself. So, again, we go back to the theme really of the whole series. I've, in, I've mentioned it in a couple different sermons, and last week in particular. When you allow your current circumstances to drive your theology of God, you are gonna, you're going to start putting expectations on God himself. He is going to have to start meeting your standard of goodness. So you may say, because of all the evil I see in the world, there's no way that God is good. So you make a determination about God's character based on what you see in the news or based on what is happening in your own life. That doesn't diminish the pain or the problem that those situations and circumstances create. But we cannot derive an understanding of God based on Circumstances. The goodness of God is not rooted in our personal expectations of God. We cannot say God is not good because I'm not experiencing what I believe should be his goodness. God sets the standard. I mean, when you think about it, what do we mean when we say anything is good? Have you ever thought about that? Like we, we say things are good all the time. That was a good meal. It was a good drink. He's a good athlete. What... What do we actually mean by that? I'll, I'll, I'll talk about baseball since it's baseball season, okay? Like, I'm going to talk about sports. That's just, I'm sorry, like that. I'm just going to talk about sports. But I guess, I guess I can stop talking about basketball for a little bit. We can talk about baseball. Um, but when something is good, it meets some ideal standard, right? Like, there's some kind of ideal standard. And whenever we say something is good, it comes close to or it meets exactly that ideal standard. So consider... A baseball player. What makes a baseball player a good hitter? You know? What makes a good hitter? Like, you know, Bryce Harper, he hits a lot of home runs, but, you know, a lot of people say he's not a good hitter right now because his average is really low. He has a low batting average. So if we use a batting average as, as a standard for what makes a good hitter, Ty Cobb holds the, the highest career batting average in the history of Major League Baseball. Um, over the course of his career, 
he hit for an average of 366. Okay, that that basically means he hit, you know, between three and four out of ten at bats, he got between three and four hits every single time. Okay, so that's that. I know some of you don't know baseball like that doesn't sound good. Like that's actually really really good. Okay, and he, but he, why do we know? Like how do we know that that's really good though? Have you ever thought about it? Like if if someone came to you and said, yeah, I had a pretty good year this year. I hit I hit 350 on the season. If you know baseball, you say, man, you you had a great season hitting. How do we know that? Because the greatest hitter. The greatest season or the greatest career ever was 366. So it's kind of the standard of what is a good hitter. What's a good batting average? It's the standard. So anyone who's kind of close to that, we say, yeah, they're, they're good. They're good hitters. Uh, Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff, here's how he relates that back to God. He says, in our ascription of goodness to God, the fundamental idea is that he is in every way all that he as God should be and therefore answers perfectly to the ideal expressed in the word God. Here's a simpler way to say it. When we say God is good, we are in effect saying God is God. Okay? When you say God is good, we are essentially saying God is God. If God is not good, he is not God. Because he is the one, he is the standard of goodness himself. So all of that to say, I've said a lot of stuff, all of that to say that goodness is rooted in God himself. It is inerrant to his very character and being, which means it is eternal and it is unchangeable. It is rooted in who he is. So if you ever encounter someone or to yourself, you're like, I'm not sure if I can say God is good because of everything that's happening in the world. You need to say, you're misunderstanding no, God is good because he is God, okay? And so it's not based on my personal expectations of what that goodness looks like. It's based on God himself. So if you're ready to write, all right, there are six aspects of God's goodness I want to emphasize to you this morning. You ready? Six aspects. If not, I'll send it out to you later. Don't worry. Six aspects. What can we say What can we say about God's goodness as we're meditating and reflecting on the glory of the fact that the Lord is good? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Six aspects I want to emphasize to you. Number one, God is naturally good. God is naturally good. It comes to him by nature. He doesn't have to learn how to be good. He is good. He is good by his very essence. God is naturally good in essence. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 119, 68. You are good, and what you do is good. Jeremiah 33, 11. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For the Lord is good. Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. God is is good by nature. He is naturally good. All right? Second, God is necessarily good. So God is naturally good and God is necessarily good. God cannot help but be good. He can't help it. Okay? There's no other option for him unless he stops being God. Okay? As long as God is God, God is good. He is good. Okay? By his nature, but also by necessity. Because he is God, he is good. He has to be, all right? So naturally good, necessarily good. Third, God is absolutely 
and only good. God is absolutely and only good. One theologian said it this way, evil, I don't know if you've ever considered this, by the way, evil is defined by its opposition to God. How do you know something's bad? You have a standard of goodness to, to compare it to. We don't have to always take that step in our minds because we can naturally see this is bad, this is evil, this is wrong. How are we able to do that? Because we have the image of God imprinted on our very hearts. But yeah, he goes on to say, evil is defined by its opposition to God and its utter dissimilarity to him. God shows no compliance whatsoever with evil. God is absolutely good. And he is only good. That's unlike you and I, right? Like, even the best among us, someone you would say, that is a good man. That is a good woman. They're not always good, right? Even those of us who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, even though we are justified in his sight and we are being sanctified, we are not yet glorified. So we are not always absolutely and only good. But God is absolutely and only good. Okay, so he's naturally good, necessarily good, absolutely good. And then fourth, God is freely good in practice. He is freely good in practice, which means that in his essence, in his character, who he is, God himself is good. He is necessarily good in essence. But nothing forces God to extend his goodness to his creatures especially his rebellious creatures, you and I. Nothing compels God to do that. So, what we can say, because we know that God is good to us, we know that he's good to us, we have to say he is freely good. He is freely good. No one forces him. He is freely good. Uh, Puritan theologian Stephen Charnock, who, if you're a reader and you're, and you're a nerd like me, uh, you need to get the works of Stephen Charnock. They, they are fantastic. They are phenomenal. Um, he writes, as it, is the nature, or as it is the perfection of his nature, God's goodness is necessary. As it is the communication of his bounty, his goodness is voluntary. So as God communicates his goodness to his people, as God communicates his goodness to the world that he created, he does that freely. He does that freely to his creation. Okay, fifth, God is generally good to all people. Okay, we, we can with all honesty say that. God is good to everyone. He is good to everyone. In, his goodness is indiscriminate in this general capacity. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Whether it's given, whether those gifts are given to those who are in Christ or those who are not in Christ, every single good thing that any person in the world receives is a gift from the good Father, the good God who is above. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All. The Lord is good to all. He's good to everyone, generally. Acts 14.17, we read, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So if, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're, and you're exploring God, maybe you're, maybe you're angry with God, maybe you're confused about God, you don't know, I, I would encourage you to, 
to think for a moment about all of the good things that you've experienced in your life, especially those things that you had no control of. Maybe you were born into a good home. You can control that, you know? Maybe, maybe you have a good job, and, and sure, you work to that, but maybe it was, uh, like we all know with jobs, like it's just like, it feels like just random connections that are made that, that puts you in a good position. Think about the good things in your life. Here's what I would, I would say to you, the Christian worldview would say to you. You have those good things because God is good. He is good. He is good to you. Even if you hate him, with every single fiber of your being, you hate him. He is still good to you. He is still good to you, and he will continue to be good. That's who he is. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, the most evil among us. Think about it. The most evil among us receive good gifts from God. Why? Because it's who he is. He is good. However, so God is generally good to all people. There is another level to his goodness. If he's generally good to all people, God is specially, so not especially, but specially good to his people. That's the final, final aspect of God's goodness I want us to think about. He is specially good to his people. He's generally good to all people, but he, is, he has a special kind of goodness toward his people. Psalm 23, 6, you know it well. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 31, 19, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge on you. For those who fear the Lord, for those who have trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, there is a special kind of goodness that is available to them. And it's primarily seen in Jesus himself. The salvation that you and I have received in Christ is a special kind of goodness that he extends to his people. He especially, he has a special kind of goodness that he extends toward his people. Okay, the glory of God's goodness in himself. As glorious as God's goodness is in himself, he is so gracious that he extends his goodness to us and works out his goodness through us. So the second, the second thing I want us to meditate on from this passage is the power of God's goodness in his people. So when we see in verse 8, we say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Why is that man blessed? Because the Lord is good and has been good and continues to be good to him. Okay? God continues to be good. You are blessed because God continues to be good to you in Christ. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. For those of us who have received God's goodness, we are called to extend God's goodness. Okay? God's goodness doesn't merely extend to his people. God's goodness extends through his people. Okay? It's not just something that we receive. We are supposed to be a conduit of his goodness in this world. As God's people, we are called to display goodness. Basically, we're called to be good. And I know, I know, those of you who are quick, no one is good but God. You know, no one's good but God. There is nothing, nothing in me. 
that is good. It's like, okay, finish the statement though. Because, because if Jesus died on your behalf and you are considered and counted as righteous before him, then God is working out your salvation and you are called to work out your salvation. Which means you are being sanctified. Which means that you are being conformed to the image of his son. Which means that day by day, moment by moment, year by year, you should look more and more and more like Jesus who is himself the very image of God. We should look more and more like God, which means we should be more and more good. We should reflect his goodness in the world. Psalm 25, 8, what does it say again? Good and upright is the Lord. Since he is good and upright, it says, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. In what way? In his way. In his way. Good is the Lord, and he will instruct sinners in the way of this goodness. So we are called to follow. I'm going to go to it in a second. Do me a favor. Turn with me to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. The power of God's goodness isn't something that we just receive. The power of God's goodness is something that we share with the world. Okay, Galatians 5, verse 22. I want you to read it so you can see it for yourself. But the fruit of the Spirit, okay, or what we could say, the evidence of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, this is the fruit that you should see. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, what? Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. Which means that one of the ways that we show we belong to Jesus, one of the ways that we display that we are new creations, one of the ways that we showcase the Spirit of God in us is to be good is to display the goodness of the Lord. Goodness in us and goodness through us is evidence that we belong to Jesus. So we display it. And what does it mean to display God's goodness? Basically, it's really, like, it's simple. There are so many different facets, so many different ways, and it'll look so different from person to person and culture to culture. But basically, it's to work for the good, for the benefit of others. To work for the benefit of others. Is that your mindset as you think about membership in this church? How can I work for the benefit of others in this body? How can I work for the benefit, for the good of the people in my life group? Just asking the question. You'd be surprised what questions can do. Like just ask the question at the beginning of the week. How can I work for the good, for the benefit of someone at work this week, in my family this week, in my church this week? What could I do? Ask yourself the question. I'm not giving you specific answers on what you can do. I'm not giving you a list. I know you want me to. You want a, you want a list, don't you? You want a list. We're all little legalists. I need a list so I can just check off all the things and make sure I did it all right. No. 
No, the spirit, the spirit will work in and through you as we pursue goodness in our church. Okay, while you're in Galatians 5, if you didn't turn back, move on down to Galatians 6. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. This would be an excellent verse for us to, to memorize and to live out. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Wait, who? Everyone. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, here's a profound exhortation for you this morning. It took me all week to come up with this. Be good to one another. Be good to one another. Do good to one another. Do good. Okay, you have a question? I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm about to you know, ask this guy to lunch, and we're going to have a conversation, and you need, to, you need to filter some things, like I'm about to say this, what, you know, uh, I don't know if this is going to be good or not. What, 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 is, what are, I mean, do you, do you have a filter? Do you have a filter that you think through? Like, okay, I'm about to text, I'm about to call, I'm about to have a meeting. A good filter is, how is this for this person's good? If you don't have a good answer for that, maybe you shouldn't meet. Maybe you should wait. That's such a good question for us to ask. You have a ministry idea? We want to hear them. Ask the question, how is this for the good of this city? How is this for the good of this church? How, how is it for the benefit of others? Display God's goodness. Display God's goodness in the city. Do good to everyone. But especially, what's Paul say? Especially to those who are of the household of faith. If we do anything else, or if we don't do anything else, may we be good to one another in this body. And that will display the power of God's goodness. All right, finally. I'm going to say something a little more provocative. All right? This is what meditation does. Meditation is fun. Do you meditate on Scripture? Do you meditate on it? Do you go to a verse and, and we see, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good? And you think to yourself, okay, I want to taste and see. I want to experience the Lord's goodness. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And you go deeper and deeper and deeper. Let's go, let's go to a deep level here. So we've already said, we've already meditated on two things. First, the glory of God's goodness in himself that his goodness doesn't depend on anyone else. It's natural to him. It's, it's necessary to his essence. Second, we said the power of God's goodness in his people. We must display the goodness of God in us. Finally, well, let's meditate on the abundance of God's goodness in his son. The abundance of God's goodness in his son. How great is God's goodness to us? How abundant is God's goodness to us. Psalm 31:19 says, "How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you." I want to turn that into a question. How great is your goodness? How great is your goodness? So, to do that, we need to consider a few things. So, walk with me. Walk with me. First, consider. Consider who you are in light of who God is. 
And if you're not sure about who God is, you're not sure where you, where you kind of stand with that, just know that the Bible indicates that Christians believe that God is by nature good and he is by nature holy. He is by nature perfect and glorious. Are you any of those things? Okay, so no, no, there's a disconnect then. So consider who you are in light of who God is. Is Not who others think you are, not how you present yourself to your co-workers or to your family, who you are in the depths of your soul. You know yourself or should know yourself better than anyone else. Who are you in light of who God is? You are sinful. You are. I am. Consider how sinful Consider how unworthy, consider how undeserving we are to receive goodness from such a perfect and holy and good God. We don't deserve it. Remember, we said one of the first aspects we talked about, he freely extends his goodness. It's, he freely does that. We don't deserve it. We have not, we, he has not, we have not caught God's eye and he said, oh, those are some really great people down there. Let me give them some good things. That's not, that's not how it works. Consider how holy God is. Consider how worthy God is. All right, now let me tell you a story. God is good to all people. He sends rain when we need rain. He does that, right? Like in summers down here? Sometimes he doesn't. But he sends rain when we need rain. The sun rises when we need the sun to rise. He provides. He provides for all people. He is good to all people. But consider that special goodness I talked about earlier. That God himself, in history, in history, God the Son came to earth to live as a man. God took on flesh. He was born as a baby of the Virgin Mary. He grew up. He lived a perfect, sinless life, a life unlike you and I live, in perfect righteousness, in perfect obedience to his Father. And then eventually, as he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, the greatness and the goodness of God manifest in Jesus, as he's proclaiming that, who he is and what he's come to do. He faces opposition. He is eventually arrested, put on trial, and he is executed. And what we learn is that Jesus, God and man, God in the flesh, Jesus himself suffered the penalty of sin. Because when you consider the great, the great uh, uh, disconnect between God and us, it's a little deeper than that. Since we have rebelled against God, we are deserving of punishment.
Consider, woo, there I am. <laughs> Consider, see now, now my voice is going to feel better. I don't, have to, I don't have to shout. Consider the limitless depths of God's goodness shown to us, which Christ did not receive. So here's the question. Is it possible that God could show more goodness to his people than to his beloved son? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How good? How good has he been to us in Christ? Is it possible? Is it true? That God, for a time, was more good to you and I than he even was to his own son. That's the claim. For a time, we received more goodness from God than Jesus did. Stephen Charnock again. So listen carefully to this. The goodness shown to us, God's people, is a greater goodness to us than was for a time manifested to Christ himself. You see, God valued and loved you so much, so much, that he sentenced his own son to a life of humiliation on this earth so that every single person who trusts in Jesus will one day live in eternity an eternity of exaltation. Jesus was humiliated so that we would be exalted. I, lo I love how Sharnik puts it. Listen, now listen to this. This is so great. God was desirous to hear Jesus groaning and see him bleeding that we might not groan under his frowns and bleed under his wrath. He spared not him that he might spare us, refused not to strike him, that he might be well pleased with us, drenched his sword in the blood of his son, that it might not forever be wet with ours, but that for his goodness might forever triumph in our salvation. He was willing to have his son made man and die rather then man should perish. Let me read that again. But that his goodness might forever triumph in our salvation. He was willing to have his son made man and die rather than man should perish. Those of us who had delighted to ruin himself, he seemed to degrade him for a time from what he was. For a time, as Jesus is bearing my sin and your sin on the cross, God the Father is, is more good to you in all of your wretchedness and me in all of my sin than he was to his own son. The limitless depths of the goodness of God shown to us. How good is this great God? Mark Jones says it, I think, the best. The highest gift possible for the Father to bestow on His people was that of His Son. 
the one to whom he showed for a period less goodness than he showed to vile, God-hating sinners like you and me. As we reflect on such an expression of God's goodness, we must also be moved by the fact that the one who for no reason merited divine wrath received what we deserved. Amazingly, for a time, Christ received more wrath and we more love. So here's the question, especially if you've never considered this before. Why? Why? Why would God exalt us? Why would God spare us? Why would God reward us? Why would God be so good to us? Why would he bless us? Why should we receive such blessing and goodness and love and victory over sin and over death and over the punishment we deserve? If we're honest, it's, we know it's not because we deserve it. We know we're not worthy. We know we haven't merited it. Why then? Why? Because God is good. Because God is good. We can remain content when a God so good, a God so good to us, withholds something we deeply desire. When God withholds something from us that we think would be for our good, we can still be content even as we wrestle with him because we know how abundant his goodness has been to us in his son. We can remain content when a God so good to us in Jesus allows us to suffer. If God himself would take on our humiliation, our shame, our sin, our punishment, then can we not trust him to provide for us and continue to be good to us even when we suffer, even when we're sorrowful? Whatever God allows or ordains for our lives and for this church, whether pleasure or pain, we can be certain, we can be certain that our hands, or our, our hands, our lives are in the hands of the God who is nothing but good. So, here's my plea to you this morning. Whether you've been a Christian your entire life, a few days, or you don't even know why you're here. Here's my exhortation. Come and taste and see for yourself that God is good. Come taste his benevolence. Come see his goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you who take refuge in him, you are blessed. You have no reason to fear anything in this world because you fear this great and this good God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We are, we are blown away we are blown away by how good you are to us. You are good to everyone. You are good by nature. We revel in all of that. But we take particular joy in the fact that for a time, you were more good to us than you were to your son. For a time, Christ received more wrath and we received more love. 
the scandal of that exchange brings us to tears. We deserve your wrath. We deserve banishment from your presence and your kingdom. And yet you have brought us in. You have loved us so much, not because we are deserving of love or worthy of love, but because you are so good. So we praise you for your goodness and its limitless depths. Help us to walk in it. Even this week, help us to walk in it. Help us to display the power of your goodness that's been shown to us. I pray that we would be conduits of your goodness this week. I pray that we would wake up each day and find ways to be agents of goodness to everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. Show us how we can be good to one another as you continue to be good to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake.